All right, so we're starting a, a new sermon series on the book of James, and the series is entitled Faith That Works, and I'm uh, excited about this series. Uh, my wife and I have been reading through the book of James uh, for a while now, and it's uh, been something that's uh, been on my heart as well as the other elders, uh, and it's just been so encouraging uh, to me uh, just during this season of life, and so my hope is that it will uh, do the same thing. Uh, for you all this morning and uh, throughout this series. So kind of where we're headed this morning is we're going to do a little bit of an overview. Uh, Luckily, in these first four verses, uh, we learn a lot about the book of James. It's kind of a a thesis for where we're we're going. Uh, We learn about the author, we learn about the audience, uh, and then we learn about the main emphasis of the book just from these four passages. And so we're going to look at those things and then we're going to get into... Uh, the first point that James makes, which is faith and trials. And so, uh, to start off, we're going to look at the author of the book of James. These uh, opening passages say, uh, starting in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first question that kind of comes up is, who is this James? There's more than one James in the Bible, and he doesn't Uh, exactly identify himself as one or the other, Uh, but it's widely held that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, And we know this because James, the half-brother of Jesus, was an apostle and a leader in the church who was known to having a ministry among uh, and to the Jews, Uh, and this letter is written to the Jews. Uh, But there are also a lot of direct references uh, to Christ's teaching, someone who had been there and heard these things. You know, James was the, the first letter, uh, likely, of the New Testament uh, that was written. And so the references to Christ and his teachings uh, came from someone who heard these things. There's a lot of uh, references we'll see to the Sermon on the Mount uh, in the book of James. And so you imagine James sitting there hearing these words from, from Christ and then using those words uh, and those teachings later And so this is uh, James, uh, the half-brother of Christ himself. And that's interesting because when you think about it, this is someone who really knew Jesus, someone who grew up from childhood uh, in a home with Jesus. I mean, they they played tag together and climbed trees together and did all the things that kids do. and, And, you know, that may be one of the reasons that during Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, James had a hard time coming on board. He even scoffed at, at Jesus' earthly uh, ministry at, at one point. And before we judge him for that, we, we should probably empathize a little bit. You know, the Bible says a prophet is without honor in his own home. It's, it's hard when you really know someone and have spent time with them uh, sometimes to really see the good things that God is doing uh, through them and, and, and acknowledge those things. I mean, this is someone he's building pillow forts with one moment, and the next moment, Jesus is saying he's the Son of God and going around teaching this. So James was kind of slow to come around, but yet here we see in our text that something must have changed. At some point, there, he makes this transition from unbelief to belief and calls himself a servant of of the Lord Jesus Christ, which that word servant can be translated slave. He is saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord. And so we we get to uh, marvel at the power of the gospel right from the outset, that this 
individual who was against Christ during his earthly ministry and had a hard time accepting the fact that his half-brother was the Son of God, that the power of the Gospel changed him and he did a, a 180 and now he is one of the apostles and he is teaching others what it is to believe in Christ and to obey him. And so throughout this series, this is a good fact to keep in mind, just to remember that the person writing these words is the half-brother of Jesus himself. It'll add significance to some of the things that we cover. The second thing we learn is who this letter is written to, the audience. And the text is interesting here because it says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so the Jews, after their, their exile, were dispersed literally to the, to the ends of the known world. They inhabited pretty much every territory and, and, and community. Uh, Josephus, in his writing, says that every city in which he visited, there was a synagogue. Uh, the Jews very much were uh, a scattered people during this time, and it's possible that the letter of James was copied several times and sent to several different locations for this reason. And so he's writing to these Jews who find themselves living as, as foreigners, really, in, in, in someone else's land. And so it's to Jews, but it's also to Christians. And the teachings are applicable to all of us. These aren't Jews who are still practicing Old Testament Judaism, but these are Jewish believers who have received and believed in the coming Messiah. And that's significant to remember as well. This is a letter to Christians. There's, there's not a, a strong argument throughout James so much on justification as there is on sanctification. James focuses on seeing Christians grow in what it means to be a Christian and in living the Christian life. And that brings us, thirdly, to James' main emphasis in the book, which is genuine faith. We read in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James' main concern throughout the letter is the building of genuine faith, the persevering of genuine faith, the living out of genuine faith. He ties everything back to faith. He wants them to understand that every circumstance in life is an opportunity to put our faith into practice and to, to see our faith grow. It, to James, faith isn't just some internal creed or, or belief system that, that we tuck away inside and that makes no difference in, in how we live our lives. In fact, he says three times in this book that faith that does not result in actions is a dead faith. He even goes so far to say that even demons are capable of such faith, just cognitive recognition of who God is. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to share the same faith as demons. And I know that sounds heavy, but James makes it abundantly clear that genuine faith desires to express itself through action. And my hope for this series is that we'll be encouraged to, to put our faith into practice, to live in light of our identity in Christ. And it, there is a word of caution that we have to take this morning because, you know, the book of James is so intensely practical. It is so straightforward and heavy on, on imperatives. And the easy thing to do is, is to moralize his teachings. Moralism can easily result from 
reading James in an incorrect light. I was, I was talking with, uh, with Steve McNew uh, this last Friday at our crowded house, and he was saying that you know, he has Jehovah's Witnesses come to his house, and he talks with them frequently, and, and they always want to go to the book of James. Why? Because it's easy to moralize the book of James. It makes for easy legalism. Do this, don't do that. End of story. I mean, this is one of the reasons why during the Reformation, Martin Luther avoided the book of James altogether. He saw how it was being abused by the Catholic Church to teach a justification by works. But, you know, this is not the the right response, is it? We don't avoid books of the Bible because other people twist them. We seek to rightly understand the whole counsel of God, to rightly divide the word of truth. And so we're going to dig at the heart of what James is saying in his book this morning. But there is a word of caution when it comes to being aware that we're not moralizing it or resulting in legalism. And we'll talk about that more when we talk about faith and obedience and faith and works. But just a few bullet points really quick here because we'll be off on the wrong foot if we don't understand these things from the start. James, in his book, never teaches that works can earn you saving faith. We should never take the imperatives of this book and think that they provide us a pathway to salvation. That's not what James teaches, nor does he teach that works are always proof of saving faith. We can have works without faith. But what James does teach is that we can't have faith, genuine faith, without works. Meaning real faith, genuine faith, will affect the way we live our lives. It will affect and be lived out in the here and now. And that's James' message. He is speaking to Christians who've already received Christ's forgiveness, and he is merely calling them to act in accordance with their new nature. They need this admonition. Calvin said in his commentary uh, on the book of James, he said, This letter was written because the church was in need of the goads of exhortation. They needed to be reminded that faith seeks to express itself and should never be bottled up. The Apostle Paul picks up on this idea when he writes to the Galatians and he says in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. When we put our faith in Christ, the love of God fills our hearts. And in faith, we long to express that to others. It wants a way out in the way that we live, in the way that we treat people, in the way that we conduct ourselves. And so during this series, we're going to look at practical ways that our profession of faith should be making a difference in how we think and how we live in the real world. And here's a roadmap of where we're headed. We're going to look at faith and trials. This morning we'll touch on that. We're going to look at faith and temptation, faith and obedience, faith and favoritism, faith and actions, faith and words, faith and wisdom, faith and submission, and faith and prayerful patience. This is where we're headed in the series. And so as you noticed, the first connection that James makes is between faith and trials. And trials really are the backdrop of this letter. It's the reason that he starts 
by talking about trials, and he ends the letter by talking about trials. It is what is in the mind of his audience. He has to deal with this before he can talk about anything else. And what are the trials that the church is experiencing during this time? Why does he start here? Well, the church had trials, first of all, coming in from the outside. As I said, these are the 12 tribes in dispersion. They are living in a foreign land. And as you know, Jews who who had been scattered about the, the world and even in modern history haven't always been welcome in the places that they've settled. And so they're suffering persecution on that front, but there's kind of a double whammy here, right? Because they're Jewish Christians, even better. Christianity hadn't gained mainstream uh, acceptance in this day and age. People were still skeptical about the teachings of, of Christianity, and so Christians were being persecuted. And so not only are they Jewish, but they're Christians. And so they were suffering this oppression and persecution from those around them, from outside the church, but they're also dealing with a trial inside the church. James talks in his letter about infighting and divisions that are taking place in the church, classism that is causing the rich to mistreat the poor. There's turmoil in the body and the relationships in the body. And thirdly, he drills down even more and talks about the trials that are experienced within the individual, the temptations that try to pull us away from Christ, temptations to idleness, Temptations to worldliness. The, the internal struggle between the new and the old man that can cause chaos in any environment as well as internally within ourselves. And so he highlights the multifaceted struggle that Christians face. Various trials in our text wasn't a hypothetical. It was a reality for them. They were suffering various trials and so will we in this life. Life in this fallen world is very much a life of struggle and and turmoil. We always live with that sense that things are not as they should be. There's not many moments where we're not battling something, right? Whether they're trials in our circumstances, trials in our relationships, or trials that stem, again, from that internal battle between our old and new nature. So what James wants to do right from the outset is offer a word to this church that is suffering these trials. And in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what James does here is he, he says something shocking right from the outset to capture their attention. It's a, it's a hook, right? We see this literary device used even today. You, you, know, you read an article or, or nonfiction is great at this. You know, you, the very opening line is something that just grabs you. You pick up the book and, you know, I was only seven years old, but already I had amassed an impressive collection of severed heads or something like that. And all of a sudden, you're just hooked, right? That's not an indication of what I'm reading, by the way. <laughs> thought about that. <laughs> but it's something that you ever read something like that and it just shocks you right from the start, but then you're like, I got to keep going. And so this is what he's doing here. He says something that is so counterintuitive, something that is just so shocking to the listener's ears. Why would we count our suffering as joy? He's calling for a radical change in in perspective and how they view their trials. And to understand exactly what he's saying, we've got to think about this phrase here, count it all joy. You see, in the Greek, this is an accounting term. 
And it's, it's very much a mental exercise because the idea is that we have this kind of mental ledger and everything that we experience gets accounted for as either something that is for our joy and well-being or something that is for our misery and our destruction. And he is saying, chalk this up, count this in the joy column. And it's highly significant that he doesn't say, feel joy. Because in the midst of trials, we often don't feel joy. We can't just command our feelings around like that, can we? If we could, we probably wouldn't feel sad. We usually don't want to feel sad. But he says, hey, count it as joy. Don't forget that this suffering is ultimately for your joy and your flourishing. And sometimes we have to hold fast to that truth objectively, even when we're not feeling it subjectively. And so what is this source of joy in the midst of our troubles? Why should we have hope when we suffer? Well, it comes from this second underlined word right here at the end, produces. Seems like an insignificant word, right? It's not. Because what that word produces means is it means that our trials are doing something. They're for a purpose. They're not meaningless. That could be a difficult truth to remember in our suffering. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I've gone through trials and I just struggle to see the meaning behind what I'm going through. Or I might even assume some negative meaning behind it. Maybe God is just using this to punish me or, or do me harm. This is the temptation when we suffer. We question God's reasoning and we question His goodness. But what James warns against, even later in this chapter, is this type of distrust. He talks about temptations later that stem from trials and says this in James 1.13, Let no one say when he's tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. In other words, don't think that God dialed up this, this trial in order to tempt you to sin, in order to plunge you into wrongdoing and destroy your life. That is not God's intention in trials. God does not push us to evil or intend evil towards his children. And then he comes right in with this truth. In verses 16 and 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Don't be deceived. What's the deception? That God designed my trials with the intention of tempting me to sin, doing me harm. It says everything that God gives is a good gift, is a perfect gift. God is incapable of giving anything other than good gifts to his children. Which means that even the trials that he allows us to endure have a good purpose. And what is the good purpose that God brings about? Well, he lays out a sequence of things. And first he says, God uses trials to test the genuineness of our faith. His good purpose has to do with faith. And first, he tests the genuineness of our faith. Let's look at verse 3 again. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, what is a test of faith? Maybe you've heard people say something like this. Uh, God will never tempt you, but he will test you. And that's true. Because the difference in temptation and testing is that temptations, as I said, are designed to push us away from God. They lure us into sin and destruction. But a test is to reveal what is there 
to expose what is there by means of a of diagnosis. You see, it's helpful to think of God as a physician in this regard. He uses trials to expose us for who we are, to diagnose us so that we have self-awareness. This is consistent with how he uses uh, these types of tests throughout Scripture. It's the exact type of testing that he does with the Israelites in the wilderness. Look at Moses' words in Deuteronomy. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Trials before they do anything else. Expose what's really going on in our heart. What we're really trusting in. Do we really believe that God is sovereign, that he is good? Do we really believe in the power of his spirit, in the power of his word? Are we really trusting in his promises? Are we really holding fast to the truth that Jesus is more than enough? Trials just have this way of stripping away the facade, don't they? And why does God do this? Is it just to shame us? To make us feel guilty? No, it's an act of love. It's so that we would have an accurate appraisal of our spiritual well-being. Just as an off, a, a doctor gives a diagnosis of our physical state for the purpose of bringing about restoration in health, so God allows trials to diagnose our spiritual state for the purpose of bringing about restoration and health. And that brings us to our second point, and it's this, that God uses trials to strengthen our faith. He doesn't just use trials to expose our faith, but he uses trials to strengthen our faith. Verse 3 again, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God uses trials to strengthen and deepen our faith so that our faith is a faith that lasts, is a faith that is steadfast and stands the test of time. It is this type of faith that is only forged through trials. Absent trials, we don't, we don't develop this type of faith. He wants us to have a faith that is patient. You know, one of the problems, you know, one of the problems with, with Christians oftentimes is we get really preoccupied with thinking that what God wants us to have is bigger faith. God wants me to have this big faith, this extravagant faith that shows up in the moment and does great things. But you know what? If you read Scripture, what you'll see is that God is not nearly as concerned about the size of our faith as he is about the longevity of our faith. I'll say that again. God is not nearly as concerned about the size of our faith as he is about the longevity of our faith. The Bible says that with faith the size of a mustard seed... We could say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea. That's, that's pretty small. It's holding fast to the truth, though. But what is much more emphasized is that God wants a faith that is steadfast, that stands the test of time. But here's the thing. Long faith usually requires long trials. The idea of steadfastness and patience infer that there's the passage of time. It doesn't come quickly. And I'll tell you something else that, that I've come to learn about Christians is that we actually don't mind trials. We don't. We don't mind trials as long as they're short. Right? We don't mind trials as long as they're short. Give me a one-day trial and I'll get through that. I can buckle down for a week 
But when the things that we're dealing with stretch on for months and years, that's what really tests us, isn't it? I mean, you look at the life of Abraham, the father of our faith. What was it that that caused that lapse of faith where he went out and, and slept with his maidservant and ended up with Ishmael? It was time. It was time. God gave him a promise and it was taking too long in his mind and time has a way of just eroding away slowly at the faith that exists. But if we're steadfast, guess what? It will forge our faith. It will solidify our faith. Long faith is built in long trials. And I say that because I know there are people in this room who are going through long trials. Some of you have had health struggles you've been battling for decades. Some of you have hopes and dreams that you've been wanting to see come to pass for what what seems like eternity. Some have relationships that have been damaged for years and have not been restored. Others have been faithfully praying for lost loved ones and they still don't believe. Time is wearing on you. And my message to you this morning is don't give up. God has not forgotten about you. He's using a long trial to build long faith, which is of great value. In due time, we will see the purposes of God come to pass. Our passage teaches us that this morning. And that leads us to our third point, is what is one of God's purposes in our trials? Well, what we learned this morning is God uses trials to produce spiritual wholeness. Let's look at verse 4. It says, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the outcome. This is the outcome that allows us to count it all joy when we go through various trials. This is the outcome that allows us to remain steadfast in the midst of suffering, even suffering that seems to never end. The words perfect and complete, lacking nothing, is a picture of a person who has been made spiritually whole and is fulfilled and is in want of nothing because they are content in Christ. And so we go back to God as physician again, and we see his masterful handiwork in our trials. He uses trials to diagnose our faith, but then he uses trials to also build our faith and make it steadfast for the ultimate purpose of making us healthy and whole, which is any doctor's goal. And we'd be kidding ourselves if there wasn't a bit of idealism in James' words this morning, right? I mean, are we ever in this life absolutely perfect and absolutely whole, lacking nothing? No, of course not. We have to to consider this passage similar to when Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He didn't think we would actually be perfect. But when it comes to sanctification, it's helpful to have an aim. It's helpful to have an ideal. Because not only do they give us something to aspire to, but they remind us that we've never really arrived. This is a process that is never really done with in this life. There's always room to grow. There's always room to develop more steadfastness and patience and to experience spiritual maturity and wholeness in a greater level, to experience contentment in Christ and the joy of his fullness in greater measure. Something that happens throughout this life. 
And this is the joyful end that serves as a motivation in our trials. God is using our trials to bless us, not to curse us. In James' closing, he draws on the, what's probably the best example of this in any human life in Scripture when he draws from Job. And he says, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You see, when we read the book of Job, we see the intense struggle that this man suffered. We see the perseverance that he exhibited, the unwavering commitment to God. But you know what else we see in the last chapter? We see that the trial was not intended to destroy him and that Job's perseverance wasn't in vain. God had a beautiful purpose in it all, so much so that the author of Job concludes with this, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. James uses God's faithfulness to Job as an example to us that just as Job's end was better than his beginning, so it will be for those who are in Christ. And that's the key this morning, those words, in Christ. Our suffering doesn't have to have the last word. And we have hope in our trials because of Jesus. Apart from him, our suffering on earth would just be a preview of the ultimate suffering that is to come when those who have rejected him spend an eternity in darkness separated from the life-giving presence of God. And maybe for you, you're living in a taste of that darkness right now. Maybe to you, life is just dark. You don't see hope in anything. And I want to tell you this morning that for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, we know this, that he bore our suffering upon the cross. He took upon himself the suffering for our sin and gave us his life, his peace, his joy, and an eternal inheritance that never fades. And for Christians here, we should never take this for granted. The reason our suffering turns out for our joy is because of Christ. We don't deserve that. We deserve suffering that endures forever. And that should cause us to worship him. There's an Irish scholar by the name of Alec Moiter. When he comments on this, this passage of, of Job, he says this. He says, many people have pondered the problem of pain, but few pause to ponder the problem of happiness. Why should a holy God give restful days, a happy home, healthy and dear children to a sinner like me? How I should love him for his blessings. And oh, how we should love him, church. How we should love him for the fact that although we don't deserve it, God is working through our trials to give us an end that is far better than our beginning. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you that you are sovereign and in control of all things. We thank you that you are also good. And that although we don't see your purposes and your in your hand, Lord, we, we know that they are good purposes, Lord. We know that we are blessed in you. And that any suffering we endure in this earth, Peter says, is momentary and light compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. We thank you for that. We do not take it for granted. 
You are worthy of our worship and praise for it. And I pray that we would remember it, God, in our trials, that we would be able to hold fast to that hope, that we would be able to count it all joy, Lord, not because we're feeling joy, but because we're holding fast to the truth that you are good and have good purposes for your children. I pray that during this series, we would grow in this nurtured faith, in this steadfast faith, that we would become more resolute in what we believe, that we would have a faith that stands against the trials of this life, that lasts the test of time, and that it's lived out in this world practically as we serve those around us. Do this for us now, Lord, over these next several weeks, God, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.